Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back to the show. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the last couple of episodes. I really enjoyed making them. Uh, I know that there was a significant amount of time between some of these episodes, but sometimes life gets in the way, and uh, I know you all uh, know that uh, I mean it very much when I say that uh, I'm, I do my best to put this show out there, but, uh, you know, I got a little one at home, I got a life going on, I got all kinds of things and I got the flu and all these other things happen. So we're back on schedule, we're back on track and we're really going to try to keep it to an every week type of thing because so much is happening and I, you know, when I when I say stuff like that, it's not some kind of cliche. I, I really do feel sometimes like there's just not enough hours in the day for me to cover everything that's going on and, and certainly not in the depth that it requires. But to be honest with you, I really think that that's one of the things that Counterpunch really represents. It represents critical and detailed analysis, not some 10-second soundbite, not some, you know, pay-per-click kind of, uh, you know, online media scheme, not some weird sort of quasi-state-sponsored outlet or whatever. It's a truly independent platform that brings you analysis each and every day from so many different perspectives from all over the world, from across the, uh, you know, across many different borders, many different uh, dividing lines, and I really do appreciate that, and if you agree with me about that, please consider becoming a subscriber to the magazine. Uh, the magazine is great. I think they're now uh, branding it with the 25-year anniversary logo, which is also cool and nifty. Uh, you know, keep them next to your toilet. Keep them for, you know, a rainy day. Keep them for when the internet goes out after the World War III bombs start falling. Whatever the case may be, please do... Uh, uh, consider doing that. Supporting the website also. You can donate through PayPal. You can call Becky in the Counterpunch office. You can do all sorts of uh, uh, maneuvers to make that happen. Anyway, uh, let's turn to uh, what we want to talk about today. I, I kind of teased it last week, but I'm very excited to speak with a returning guest about what's going on in Brazil. Uh, Mike Fox has been on the show before, but I'm happy to welcome him back. Uh, Mike is an amazing researcher. He's an independent multimedia journalist based in Brazil. He's a former editor of NACLA's report on the Americas. Uh, you can follow his work on his website, www.mfox.us, and you can also follow him on Twitter, at mfox underscore us. Mike's on the program today to talk about what's going on in Brazil and to help us understand. Mike, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm, I'm really... Uh, when I say excited, I, I, I really am because this is a this is an ongoing saga in Brazil that in many ways I think is kind of flying under the radar given the, you know, daily shitstorm that is Donald Trump, given everything else that's happening in the in the media and, you know, the shiny objects taking our attention. Um, but you've been following, obviously, what's going on down there in Brazil and really doing some great work. If I could just highlight one piece here and uh, then I'll get you to talk and I will shut up. Uh, your piece in The Nation, excellent, dated April 19th, headline, Lula may be in jail, but Brazil's Occupy movement won't let hope die. 
Great, great article. Gives so much information. Let's begin there, Mike, if we could. You start the piece uh, at a critical moment earlier this month. Uh, tell us about that moment. Tell us why it was important and what the mood was like in the, you know, where it was taking place and in the country. Yeah, so um, it begins, I guess, at this point about two, two and a half weeks ago in a suburb of Sao Paulo called San Bernardo de Campo. And this is kind of the heart of the working class movement in Brazil. It's where Lula, uh, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, the former president who is now in jail, and we'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, this is where he got his start. This is where he's from. Uh, he was uh, a union worker. He was with the metal workers. And so this this spot has a really, really key, in, in important kind of imaginary for, for people to understand uh, kind, of, kind of where this, the whole working class struggle and where kind of the left has come over the last four decades. So he found himself um, just about two and a half weeks ago there at the metal workers union at the headquarters in San Bernardo de Campo, uh, which is again where he got his, which is where he got his start. It's where he got his beginning back in the 1970s. Uh, and the Supreme Court had just ruled against him. Now, I, I guess to, 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 to put all this together, we have to go back just a little bit. So he was um, convicted of corruption for allegedly uh, accepting a beachside apartment uh, as a bribe in exchange for uh, a company receiving government contracts. That's, 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 the, that's the allegedly, right? Um, and so basically he was convicted of corruption. This was last July. Uh, he brought out appeal in January. The court, uh, saw the appeal and rejected it. And then there were several different rounds of, uh, different obstacles and, and, and different, um, kind of embargoes on that appeal. But that's what brought us back to April. Um, essentially it came before the Supreme court, whether or not he would have to go to jail before uh, taking his appeal throughout all the courts. So if we go back just a little bit, according to the Constitution, the Brazilian Constitution, it says that um, people have the right to be able to appeal, to appeal, to appeal, and only in the very end can they be jailed. That's essentially what the Constitution, or at least what a lot of people read the Constitution as. Uh, according to what the Supreme Federal Court, Supreme Court back in 2016 said, they said, no, after you've brought it up to one appeal and it's been ejected, uh, rejected at that point, you can then serve time. So this all came to a head back, uh, I believe it was April 5th, April 4th. And that's when the Supreme Court basically said they rejected his appeal. That he was trying to say, no, I should remain free while I continue to appeal. Uh, and they, they voted that down six uh, ministers to one. And then within 24 hours, the man, uh, Sergio Moro, who's been kind of the main uh, judge behind the whole Petrobras, Lava, Lava Jato corruption uh, investigation, and we'll get, that, you know, we'll get into that in a second, Lula's case obviously falls into that. Uh, and so basically he said no, uh, and so you're, you're, you're going to jail. Um, and so he uh, requested, ordered Lula to appear before jail. This was on a Friday at 5 p.m. So the day before, when this all went down, 24 hours, this was a Thursday, um, then as soon as, so Lula went to the union headquarters and, and basically his supporters started to descend 
on uh, in and around the headquarters building. People saying, we will not, A, we will not let him go to jail, and we're going there to protect him. Uh, they had called for this large mobilization, and thousands of people came from across Sao Paulo. They came from neighboring states. Uh, and that's kind of where my story begins in, in the Nation article. And that's where, where, where I uh, found myself running to the kind of to the mobilization. And I arrived there about an hour before the five o'clock deadline uh, was supposed to pass. Now, just to put this in, in, into context, you know, this is a union building that has had, uh, you know, years, decades of important uh, workers organizing. But people there that, that night, and they were basically there for, for essentially 39 hours, 40 hours, uh, they just could not get over the fact that how, how historic this was. I mean, what you had was a situation, and it wasn't just union workers, right? It was the PT, obviously the Workers' Party. But then you had tons of social movements. You had the landless workers' movement that brought in buses of hundreds of people, and they were kind of sleeping down hallways and here and cooking for people. You had the Cooch, which was the largest you know, labor federation in the country, and they were there. Um, the homeless workers' uh, movement also, which is very strong in Sao Paulo in particular, they were there. Uh, and so this was really kind of ground zero. All the televisions were we're, we're focused on what was happening here because basically Lula, he didn't come out with any statements, but it was very clear by, by the time I got there around 3.30, 4 o'clock that he was not going anywhere. He had to appear before a court in Curitiba, which is you know four or five hours away by bus. It's about an hour by plane. Uh, and he did not appear. And so there was a lot of fear at the moment. By that point, five o'clock in the afternoon when the deadline passed, okay, are the police going to raid? Uh, but people, there were thousands of there. People continued chanting. They they had um, you know speeches throughout the night, rallies throughout the night, and then music went on until early in the morning, and it became almost a party because Lula was defying a court order uh, to to appear essentially to serve time for prison. He was saying, "No, I'm not going." So this was huge. This was really important in terms of the psyche of of kind of the left. Lula turning himself in and just saying, "Okay, fine," particularly in a case that. He says he's absolutely innocent. His supporters say he's absolutely innocent. Uh, and that's just not his like diehard supporters. We're talking about, there was a book that just came out uh, a few weeks ago, and that was 100 judges and lawyers who came out with their arguments about why the whole case against him is, 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 is basically a witch hunt to try to stop him from, from running in this year's elections. We'll get into that in a second. Elections in October, Lula's the front runner uh, with... In, in, in the most conservative poll, 31%. Um, but if he can't run or if he has to go to jail, then obviously that's a major, major issue. And the left is kind of left without, uh, you know, with, with somebody like Lula, who's, who, who's a shoo-in, who would definitely win. Um, so the five o'clock deadline passed. People stayed through the night. There was uh, an event the next morning for Lula's late wife, who passed away last year. It, was, it would have been her birthday. Uh, and so they held kind of an ecumenical event the next morning with ministers of all these different religions. And it was a really beautiful thing. People came and, and it was extremely emotional, tears in the crowd. Um, and, you know, and they were there obviously to, for, to be there for, for, for Lula's ex-wife, but also for Lula. He hadn't spoken the entire time he was in the union hall. Uh, and this was when he gave his first speech. And during the speech was when he said he was going to turn himself in. Apparently, there was a deal made between the federal police that would allow him that said, OK, fine, we're not going to come get you. They were worried about a bloodbath because of these thousands of, of supporters. We're not going to let Lula out. And the, the last thing the police want to do was raid this thing. Um, and essentially, they made this deal where he would 
turn himself in the next day, but he wanted to, to have the time, be able to, to have this ceremony the, the following morning. Um, and then, you know, obviously the, the next day, Lula's supporters, in the moment he tried to leave after this, after this, and, and, and just to go back, I mean, the, the, his, his speech, I, I think it's important to focus on it a little bit because he, he very much said, listen, I am not a, a man. I'm not a person. Uh, I am going, you know, I'm me going to jail. I'm going to turn into millions of Lula's. We are all Lula. And that was the chant that people, people were, were chanting was, I am Lula, I am Lula. And that's really been the theme of a lot of the organizing at this point, is though he's in prison, people organizing to try and get him out, but also this, this kind of sense of replicating his image, which I think is, is really key at this point, particularly with the right wing pushback across all of Latin America, across Brazil. And, and that's really started kind of this, this, this idea rolling. The other thing that was really powerful um, it was the very last paragraph of his speech. He basically gave, gave a nod to Manuela Davila, which is the Communist Party uh, presidential candidate, and Guillermo Bolos, which is the leader. He's the leader of the homeless workers movement, which has been very powerful in recent years, but particularly in, in Sao Paulo. And he's the PESOL uh, presidential candidate. If you remember, PESOL is the socialism and Freedom Party, it broke with the PT in 2004. That was, that's when it was formed by, it was like a splinter group of members of the PT that broke. Um, and they were on stage there with Lula. And he basically said, you know, I'm excited about the future. I'm excited about the next generation. I'm not going to be here with you. Um, but these people are, and I'm going to be there in my heart. And you guys are going to go out and kind of replicate this stuff. You know, uh, we're, we're, you know we're, we're going to continue on with this dream. And I think it's really key because this one particular moment, it literally was the end of an era, if you look at it. I mentioned this in the Nation article, but that's also what it felt in the moment. You know, just afterwards, I was speaking with, you know, people there in the crowd. Uh, and this one woman said, you know, I came here. She was, she, she's a teacher. She's a mother of, of, of three kids. She said, I came here two days ago, you know, and I was ready to put my body on the line. We were ready to defend Lula. Thousands of us were for days if, if had to be. And now... He's turning himself in. I don't know. I don't know what to expect. You know, I don't know. But this is it. I mean, people's tears, understanding what this meant. This this man, who they feel is is absolutely innocent, uh, is is going to jail. A, what does that mean for them? But also, what does it mean for the left in general? Just afterwards, I went to um, a bar where I was doing live reports, and and there was this group of lesbian women there, all of them in black shirts, amazing, amazing women. But they themselves says, you know what? We are fucked. Um, and that was the feeling at that moment. Now, what's interesting is, is what I'm going to talk about in, 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 in a second. So he ended up turning himself in, but it took him hours to get there because his supporters for like two hours wouldn't even let him out of the, they literally blocked his way. They would not let him get to the car. And then even when they got into the car, they were trying to stop his car from moving. And then, you know, once he got to the airport, there were people at the airport. Um, so I, I was basically uh, just a couple of hours ahead of him. As soon as I found out that that he was headed to Curitiba, which is where he was going to the federal police prison, then I ran to the airport, hopped the flight, got to Curitiba. And so I was there about two hours before he was. And just outside of Curitiba, you had uh, the you know opposition protesters, anti-Lula protesters. You had the pro-Lula protesters on the other side. Uh, and it was it was almost like this metaphor for the country. Right, because the country is extremely divided over this case. Literally half of the country believes Lula is completely innocent. He should not be in jail. He should be allowed to run. The other half believes he is the leader of the biggest corruption uh, scam that the country has seen 
in you know in, in in the history of the country, and that he is he is the man responsible for everything that is wrong with the country, uh, and that's what you saw in front of this federal free you know this federal prison was the journalists and the police in the middle, and then pro Lula supporters on one side, anti Lula supporters on the other side. The Lula's helicopter as it arrived, it's it's touching down on the top of the building, and suddenly. The police, just in front of the building, they started firing stun grenades and tear gas and rubber bullets into the pro-Lula uh, rally. And they completely dispersed the pro-Lula rally. There were hundreds of people there. And then, they, and then they brought out shock troops to keep them down a couple of blocks. So this is all happening as the anti-Lula supporters are shooting off you know, fireworks into the sky as the helicopter is landing. So it's just a surreal metaphor for the reality that the country is in. Uh, and that's basically where we were at just uh, a couple of weeks ago. What has happened since then? Um, the the pro Lula camp, which is which is kind of is which what my my article is very much focused on, have started an around the clock uh, vigil occupy camp, literally just two blocks from the, the federal prison, and that's pretty much become ground zero for organizing. Uh, leftist organizing, social movement, union worker organizing across Brazil. And it's really kind of uh, <clears throat> created this this excitement on the left. Uh, it's it's replicated itself. It's now there are now occupations in front of Ministry of Justices in Brasilia and Fortaleza and two other northeastern country uh, cities. Uh, and then you know the homeless workers movement, the landless workers movement and 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 other movements and union workers have 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 literally occupied. You know, dozens of other locations around the country, including the apartment which was allegedly given to to Lula. And we can get into that in a second because there's a very interesting anecdote about that. But so all of this movement is kind of happening at this moment. Lula has now been in jail for 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 almost for for two weeks, two weeks literally uh, just last night. Um, and so it creates this whole lot of doubt. At the same time, the left is, 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 is at this point kind of more mobilized and energized than it has been in a very long time. Uh, still, the occupation remains, the occupations around the country. Uh, but this kind of this thing is it's just building, it's building, and it's going to continue building because the elections, you know, we're, what are we, six months out from the elections. But um, <clears throat> everybody sees that's, that's the clear deadline. Uh, and we're going to see what happens. That's an excellent rundown. Thank you for that. Now, one of the things that's really interesting to me is that um, it seems like, and just based on your description, this is what it sounded like to me. And I know that there are some people who get shivers down their little spines when they hear the word, but it definitely sounds like a right-wing conspiracy here and that the the judges who are in, in effect hand in glove with the Temer government who are trying to essentially prevent what amounts to sort of a fate accompli, you know, for the right, wherein the right would lose, would get trounced in these elections. And so instead, they seems like they're kind of using, uh, you know, legal, if not extra legal maneuvers to uh, prevent Lula from running in the way that they kind of sort of did in terms of ousting Dilma. So can you talk a little bit about the uh, the way in which what we're seeing happening to Lula now is a continuation of at least a two-year process by the right wing in Brazil. And then the second part of that is, is that how people on the street and on the left see it? Well, the, the answer to the second part is yes, no doubt. Um, <clears throat> almost any, you know, Lula supporter, uh, and like I said, if you look at half the country, you know, essentially says, 
A, Lulu should be allowed to run, and, and B, you know, th that's why there's a major campaign that says elections without Lula is fraud. And that is kind of the major campaign on the left. So Lula should be allowed to run. That's, that, that's, that's the point. Uh, and they do see this as a continuation of the coup. A lot of people will, are, are very clear about this. At the moment that, that Dilma was ousted, and just to remind uh, listeners, so Dilma Rousseff, she was the president. She was kind of the successor of Lula. Lula was the president from 2003 through 2011. She was voted into office 2011. She won again, and she was in power in 2014, 2015. She, she, that was her second term. She was ousted in what many people believe was, was, was a congressional coup um, because she was taken out for uh, budgetary manipulations, which in the, the day after she was ousted, they changed the rules and said that those particular moves that she did should not be illegal. Now, they weren't illegal in the first place. Tons of people have done them before, uh, but, but they specifically said these are not illegal now. So you can just tell that uh, the, 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 she, you know, she was ousted by a completely corrupt Congress and corrupt, I don't have the figures in front of me, but something like a third to half of, of, of the lower house in the Senate are themselves under uh, investigations for corruption. Um, and so that was, that was 2016. And even at that moment, a lot of people started saying, well, the next person they're going after is Lula. Uh, and, and, and they're going to find a way to go after him. And it's very clear also, I think, so this is just the very first, uh, legal case they have against Lula. There's another f four corruption. There's another four or five that are kind of just, you know, in the courts and working their way through. And the way I see it and the way a lot of people see it is they're just kind of throwing stuff. They did this against Dilma too. You know, they tried to see what would stick, try to see what would stick, throw it up against the wall, try and see what would stick. Oh, this stuck. Okay, great. Then let's run with it. You know? Um, I think part of this, there, there was a really good interview. Uh, first off, there's a really good article that Mark Weisbro from CEPR, the Center for Economic and Policy Research, wrote in The Nation uh, just a couple months ago. And there was a really good interview he did with The Real News just a few weeks ago in which he talks about um, the basis or kind of the, the lack of evidence for Lula's conviction. And here, I mean, it's very clear uh, for Lula's supporters uh, and, and, and a lot of, you know, judges and, and lawyers as well, that there is no evidence. So basically they said, you know, he had accepted this apartment, uh, as a, as, as, as a bribe essentially, but there was never any proof. There was never his name on any receipts. He never lived there. Uh, I believe he did go there once or twice. He, he said that they went there cause he was considering purchasing it. Um, but they didn't. In fact, one of the times when they left, he told his wife, and this is what he told one of the journalists, he, he told his wife, this is this apartment just has, has, there's too many stairs. Can you imagine us being here with our kids? It'd be impossible. Well, no one had actually seen, and this is super interesting, um, when the homeless workers movement occupied the apartment about a week ago, they actually took a video of it and took a bunch of pictures. Because part of the, of the lawsuit against Lulu was that not just that he had accepted this apartment, but also that all these upgrades had been made to the apartment. Um, and they had been made because it was going to be given to Lula essentially, but they go into the apartment and the apartment, I mean, it's not trash, but there's not, it's not, a, it's not a luxurious million dollar apartment. And the stairs just, I mean, it, like there really is like, it just keeps going up the stairs. So they said part of what the lawsuit had actually said that there was an elevator that had been put in. The homeless workers movement found no elevator. That may have been an idea of putting one in, but there was none. Uh, and basically what the homeless workers movement said, what, what people that were there say, well, if it's Lula's, well, then let us stay. There's no reason for us to be evicted, right? Uh, and they were evicted. 
Um, you know, so it's just you're trying to point out the inconsistencies within kind of the, the, the legality of, 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 of what the reality is here. So all of this in actually in his in his report, Sergio Moro, who is this judge, uh, he has ties to the PSDB, which is the the, the, the major right wing party that the, 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 the arch nemesis have they've always been the arch nemesis of the Workers Party and, and, and Lula. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's basically what what the, the theme is. The idea is that, you know, yes, the Lava Jato um, investigations have taken down real people that have actually been, you know, involved in corruption. And that's absolutely true. But there's also been kind of this push to particularly within the media, and this is very clear, you know, taint the PT as the party that has really, you know, been responsible for bringing corruption to Brazil, or at least carrying it out. And if you look at the figures, PT is, is down at number five or six in terms of the parties that are the most corrupt, uh, or, or that have been most involved, or most tagged within the the, the Lava Jato investigations and the Lava Jato. Now, what's interesting is they very they they like they have steered completely clear of the PSDB, this this the 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 major right wing party, uh, and just now Acio Neves, who was the former presidential candidate who ran against Dilma in 2014, he just now uh, the Supreme Court decided just this last week that that he can be brought up on corruption charges under the investigations. So all of this is happening. Um, and meanwhile, it's important for people to understand that the Temer government that came to power after Dilma um, is itself, uh, has been involved in numerous corruption, uh, you know, scandals, investigations. Temer himself, he, I think it's something like six or seven um, top members of his cabinet have had to step down because of audio tapes that came out of them, they themselves, asking for bribes. So all this is happening at the same time. So the people that actually came to power after Dilma, Dilma herself was not corrupt. They were never able to take her out for anything being corrupt. But the people who actually came to power are. Um, and so that's what we're seeing is, is a reality in Brazil where the right that did not obviously enjoy, did not, never felt uh, comfortable with, you know, Workers' Party government under Lula or Dilma, in which the focus was on poverty alleviation. Now, it was not radical, it was not revolutionary, like say in Venezuela or Ecuador and Bolivia, but you know they lifted 30 million people out of, out of, out, out of poverty, uh, the focus on using uh, you know, government funds for social programs and for education and for healthcare, the, um, the, the offshore oil reserves called Bresal, the idea is those would go directly into social and education fundings, and under just under the last two years, in the Congress has opened those up to, to, to for foreign companies to, to 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 exploit and whatnot, and those are definitely not going to to you know to social and education. So all of this has happened, and that's why this is such an important issue, is because the elections here offers the this this October offers the possibility of the left coming back to power, inverting. Uh, you know, turning the clock back on all of these major reforms that the Temer government has passed. You know, we're talking about a 20-year spending freeze. We're talking about major uh, labor reform, which is you know gutted workers' rights. And um, and so the possibility of reinverting this, and you know, and not even to talk about the privatizations that have been happening to ports and airports and roads and whatever else. So the possibility of kind of moving back, shifting back toward the toward the left, and Lula offers that possibility and the majority of, of, of the people actually want him to, to run and to be in power. So that's where this all is happening. 
Indeed, and and just to put the slightly larger context on it before we go to the break, and and I remember writing about the situation uh, in 2016 as this was all unfolding with Dilma, and and, um, I think it was Glenn Greenwald, although it could have been somebody else, I remember broke the story that Temer and uh, some of his high-ranking deputies, they were on the first flight to Washington and to Wall Street to have meetings with Goldman Sachs and to have meetings with high-ranking finance uh, you know, financiers in preparation for what you just described, taking over the reins of government, opening up the country, uh, privatizing those things that had been nationalized and so forth. So uh, before we go to the break, can you just talk a little bit more about uh, how this government, uh, you know, so-called, if it's really a genuine government, how the government um, has executed both an austerity program and sort of a neoliberal privatization program just in the, what has it been, 20 months or 22 months since Dilma was removed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think the first thing for listeners to know or to remember is the day after, and I don't have the figures in front of me, but literally the, the like on his first day on the job, Temer um, cut the, the, the secretary for uh, racial equality. He cut the secretary for women's, the women's secretary, and a bunch of other kind of ministries that have been created kind of over the last 10 or, or you know, 12 years in order to, to, to kind of open up, you know, to push for equality, to open up uh, for, for those sectors of the population that have been, you know, marginalized in Brazil for centuries. Uh, and it was on his very first day on the job. And that was part of of what the rollback was, and not to mention the fact that Temer brought into power an all-white male cabinet, um, and so that. And then I think it's important to also remember, you know, it's not just Temer. He, you know, Congress is the most conservative in Brazil that it's been, uh, you know, since the dictatorship. And conservative, we're talking about the Bullets Beef and Bible Caucus. So major, major power of the, you know, big landowners big ag, agribusiness. Um, the Bible's evangelical movement is growing and it's getting bigger than ever. Uh, and, and, and bullets, the, you know, the, it's very, there, there's all these very interesting parallels with say the United States in a lot of ways. Now, Bolsonaro, which we'll get into in a second, he's a presidential candidate, kind of Trump-like presidential candidate. Uh, he himself carries a gun. He's a former captain in the military. So this is, so the power of these caucuses and the power of, of the conservative corrupt, in many cases, um, Congress. You know, these are things they've wanted to push through for for years or decades anyway. So with the switch, getting the PT out of the way, Temer, who was part of the PT coalition with the, with the PMDB, and they kind of joined forces with the PSDB that I mentioned before, kind of the, the, the staunch enemies of the Workers' Party, and they themselves have been able to push things through. Now, it is important to remember that you know, what we've had in the last couple of years are, are some of the largest uh, general strikes that Brazil has seen in, in say, something like a half a century or something like that, um, where millions of people have, have, have blocked, you know, stopped working. And this is uh, particularly around the case of the pension reform. And that is one thing that Temer has not been able to push through. And a lot of people say that part of his, the way to kind of diverge the, his attention away from the focus on the pension reform because he hasn't been able to do it is then he, you know, folks might know or remember, and we'll get into this in a second, I'm sure, but he called out the military in Rio and put the military in charge of the police force. 
so it's what it's the military intervention, and that's been ongoing for about a month and a half. Um, and so a lot of people say that, you know, that has happened. He did that in order to kind of as subterfuge because he couldn't get other things happening um, because the pension reform was just getting too costly for even folks on the right. But the other things that he did push through um, were things that they have, you know, a lot of people had wanted to for a long time and, and Congress was right there with him the whole way. So the fear is obviously of whoever comes to power this this fall. If it's not Lula, the chances of the left actually, you know, bring a candidate that can garner, you know, the, a, a major percentage or, or, you know, half the percentage of the votes is, 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 is not very likely. And the, the person running in second just after Lula, right now he's got, in the most conservative of the polls, he's got 15%, is this guy Jair Bolsonaro, who um, is extremely scary. I'm sure we'll get him, you know, get into him in, in, you know, just after the break. That's exactly right. So uh, stick with us on the other side of the break. We'll talk about the candidates in the upcoming election. We'll also talk about some of the other developments in Brazil that are really important to connect to what's happening. And then we'll uh, we'll, we'll touch a little bit on the uh, regional and global perspective. Um, you're listening to Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Mike Fox. Uh, come back and we will continue. You're asking what is socialism and what it really means It's equal rights for every man regardless of his strength So don't let no one fool you Joshua said Listen as I tell you Joshua said No man are better than none Socialism is love between man and man Socialism is love for your brother Socialism is linking hearts and would you believe me? Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your sister. Socialism is people pulling together. Would you believe me? Love and togetherness. That's what it means. Mr. Bigger trembling in his shoes, saying he's got a lot to lose. Don't want to hear about sufferer at all. One man have too many, while too many have too little. Socialism don't stand for that, don't stand for that at all. Socialism is love for your brothers. Socialism is linking hearts and ends. Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your sisters. Socialism is Socialism is sharing with your 
And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Mike Fox again. I mean, he he has he has Brazilian politics on lockdown. This is your one-stop shop for understanding what's going on in Brazil. Follow Mike's work. Uh, well, follow him on Twitter at mfox underscore us, and also at the website that is www.mfox.us. Uh, so, Mike, before the break, you were telling us a little bit about the um, the upcoming election, and aside from Lula and um, you know the traditional right wing there is this this outlier tell us a little bit more about the uh, the quasi Trump in the waiting in the wings and uh, what are his politics and uh, what should we take away from well from the fact that he's likely to be a force in these elections well he's already a force in the elections um, <clears throat> and he has a major grassroots support uh, very similar to kind of the the, the, the Trump movement uh, and these people are, are pretty fanatical. Um, like every airport, every time he goes to an airport, he flies to a new spot. He gets hundreds of people out. Um, they're in T-shirts. They're cheering. They basically take over the airport. Uh, and this is not something that you know. You might say, oh well, maybe, or it's maybe it's a media construction. You know, because a lot of the you know, in terms of the reporting as of lately, that I've I've been going to some of these these right wing protests, and he it, people love this guy. And it's not just. Somebody that, oh yeah, maybe I'll vote for him. But every single person I ask at these at these these right wing protests, they say, oh, I'm voting for Trump. I'm, I'm not Trump. I'm voting for Bolsonaro. There is no, there, there, there's just there's no doubt about it. So who he is? He is a former captain in the Brazilian uh, military, and he was a captain under the dictatorship. And that's important to understand because the dictatorship, you know, hundreds of people were disappeared and killed. Thousands were tortured. Uh, respect for human rights just did not exist. Uh, and so it's important to understand where that comes from. He uh, has been uh, a member of um, of Congress for something like 20 years, but always a very kind of sideline member, just because of his politics were just so far out there. Um, you know, he carries a gun, extremely xenophobic, racist, homophobic. Right now, it was just brought up recently, the attorney general um, has has brought up charges on, on racism against him. Uh, he's been fined for homophobic charges and sexist. I mean, the, the guy is, he is, uh, he's, he's like Trump, but like take, he has to take it to a whole other level. And that's why he, it's really concerning for a lot of folks uh, on the left, LGBT folks um, and black communities, quilombos, you know, kind of traditional um, communities of former, former slaves uh, and their descendants. This is this is somebody that like, they could really see rights being being rolled back uh, in a major way, and with his with his kind of rise and with the, the 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 folks that have been interested in him, you've also seen the rise in kind of the the in what you could you could almost call like the Brazilian alt right. Um, you know, there have been attacks on um, uh, Afro religion communities, and particularly in Rio as of late. Uh, but also on, on gay communities across Brazil. And it's been increasing just in the last kind of year or two, it, particularly since the impeachment of Dilma or just before then. So, um, so it's, this, is, this, is, this is a very, you know, obviously a part of, of the interest that it hears is kind of like you said, like an outlier, right? Uh, he's kind of an outsider that brings in, he has never been tagged for any corruption charges. So that's something that a lot of people on the right uh, really like. Uh, and like I said, after Lula, he is he is the front runner, uh, and he's in the he's the front runner for most of the polls uh, after Lula. 
Um, and so obviously that is, is a major concern. Some people think that what we might see this fall uh, is kind of a, a France-like you know, situation where you've got uh, kind of a, a neoliberal like Macron and the left is almost forced to vote for somebody like that in order to keep Bolsonaro out, out, out of power. Brazil has uh, a runoff system. So if no one gets more than 50% in the first round of elections in October, then it will go to a runoff. So it kind of depends on on who can be the you know the front runner and, and second place. Um, Mike, I'm, I want to just ask you very quickly: what is the what is the makeup of uh, Bolsonaro's base, and uh, how does that relate to the rest of the right wing? So, for instance, just to put it in perspective of uh, those of us in the U.S., for instance, you know, we saw in 2016, while I, I think any clear headed rational person understood that Trump was mostly hot air and wouldn't be any kind of a, you know, revolution in in foreign policy or anything like that. There was clearly an antipathy between Trump's base and what was traditionally the the base of the Republican Party. That is to say the 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 evangelicals and many others actually shifted further right away from the mainstream right wing and towards a Trump. What I'm I'm wondering what is the makeup like on the right in Brazil in the wake of Bolsonaro's ascension to this uh, prominent position? Is the right unifying behind him? Is it fragmented? How how do you read it? It's a good question. Um, it's not necessarily unified because the PSDB is still you know going to be throwing out their presidential candidate. Uh, I think obviously if Bolsonaro was the one was the guy on the right that that came into power, just just like the Republican Party, you'd see kind of a a unification behind him in the kind of in the runoff election. Um, you have I think it's important to understand the the differences because here in Brazil you have a major percentage like the the inequalities in the country are much larger than say in the United States. You have a much smaller middle class, and particularly just in the last couple of years many of those millions of people that were lifted out of poverty have kind of rolled back into poverty. You still have, so you don't necessarily have this situation where you have in the US of kind of the, the, the poor uh, white working class, although that does exist, but much of, and it depends also the regional thing. So Lula still is kind of essentially God in kind of the Northeastern part of the country, uh, which is the much darker skin, working class, much poorer region of, uh, of, of Brazil. And that's very, very clear. Bolsonaro is really um, kind of capturing uh, interests from kind of the middle upper class, uh, the elites. You can tell this, and it's a very similar also even from kind of the MBL and the Vimprahua groups. You know, we spoke about this the last time we talked. These are kind of the, the Tea Party style groups that have really kind of grown and exploded onto the scene in the last four years. They were really kind of very important in the um, uh, in the impeachment against Dilma, and you know also receiving money and funds from elsewhere, Koch brothers and whatnot. Um, and so Bolsonaro is very much their guy, and you're seeing them become very active in terms of that movement. There's a lot of youth that are out there that are behind Bolsonaro, uh, and so it is it is a very interesting situation. The more entrenched the entrenched you know parties. Uh, the PSDB, whatever else, they still have, in terms of the right, they still have their supporters. But there are some folks that would vote for Lula, and we've seen this in some of the polls, some folks that would vote for Lula, if Lula's not in, they would be more than willing to vote for Bolsonaro. The corruption theme in Brazil has kind of shaken stuff up a lot, and I think it's important to understand that within the, kind of the larger political scheme, uh, that people are saying, well, everybody's corrupt, we want somebody new. 
So that's that's become kind of an outlying question in terms of a lot of people, uh, and in, and that includes the PM the PMDB. The PMDB is the largest political party in Brazil, but it, it's never really had its own identity. It's kind of jumped on board where other people stand. So for the last what four terms, it's been with the PT. Before then, it was with the PSDB. So it has its ability to kind of move from one thing to another. Uh, but obviously. There's no way that that could join forces with the right now from you know the flip that it, it had because that's Temer's party uh, and its current government is completely right wing neoliberal. So you know so it's that's not clear where they span. But in terms of the electorate, people are really looking to Bolsonaro because you know a they say well he's not corrupt and 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 we want you know it's kind of the same thing you heard in in the U.S. you know right after the the economic financial crisis back in 2008, 2009, 2010, get them all out. We want all those guys out. That's what you're hearing now in Brazil. And so that's where Bolsonaro kind of comes and, and has the ability to really garner support from a lot of people. Yeah, and it's interesting because unlike Trump or you know other other political figures that have risen, uh, you know, in in much the same vein, uh, Bolsonaro does have a couple of decades in Congress. It's not somebody who you know is totally you know what we would say in the U.S. outside the Beltway or you know outside of uh, the traditional political arena. But the fact that he's emerged, I think, in this particular time, given the context, I think is really significant, and and I think that kind of leads me into my next uh, question about another subject that I think dovetails with a lot of the themes that we've been discussing here, and that is uh, the tragic and criminal uh, assassination of Mariel Franco, which happened uh, just a couple of months ago. Um, considering the political climate, this was really kind of an earth-shaking sort of event. Can you walk us through uh, who, who Franco was and why her assassination was such a uh, watershed moment. And then I guess the other part of that is how does it connect to all of the other things that we've been talking about? Absolutely. Great question. So Marielle Franco um, was a councilwoman um, in Rio. She was for the, the for the PESO, the, um, the Socialism and Freedom Party, which I mentioned earlier, that, that split with the PT back in 2004. Um, she was from the favelas of Rio. She was from the, the poor communities. And she was just this woman that, that, that carried just so much love and, and, and people just had so much support. I think she was the fifth most voted councilwoman uh, in Rio itself. Um, and, and she had been very, very vocal about the military intervention into Rio. And she did so many things in that community herself. And she, you know, she had to fight. She had to struggle just to get her, her, her university degree. Um, and she herself had worked with the peace, the, the PESOL, uh, in terms of investigations and and in, into the the role of militias in the, in the favelas, she was um, she was bisexual, she was LGBT, and she was she was black. And so her killing, her assassination, and it was a clear assassination. I mean, she, her car was she was followed after uh, an organizer of black women leaders uh, in in Lapa, I believe, in Rio. And her car was followed, and and you know it was they, they were gunned down in the middle of the street. Um, so it was very clear assassination. It was found the bullets uh, that they found came from police stocks. So it's not clear whether they were stolen, whatever else. But that uh, it was very clear that this was some sort. There were there was some sort of a connection to the police itself. And it's clear because she, like I said, it was she was very very vocal about 
uh, the military intervention and about the role that they were playing in the treatment of you know com communities in in the favelas. And this is why one of the I mean her assassination was you know was 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 a huge for all those reasons. She was a a black woman leader, extremely important leader, um, bisexual, but also um, the fact that she was killed in the moment that she was killed and the fact that she had been speaking out against the military intervention led many people to ask the question, was this, you know, was this a state-sponsored killing? Uh, and that isn't, that, it's an important question. There is no answer to that right now. But the fact that we have to be asking that question raises many, many other questions about, uh, you know, what's happening in Honduras, what's happened in Mexico and so many other kind of places across Latin America. And it's something that we haven't often seen, say, in Brazil. Now, what you see in Brazil and what you see a lot, I mean, there are, it, it, Brazil is one of the most dangerous places uh, for campesinos, uh, for low-income communities, for journalists. Uh, just now, there was a report that, that was released just a week ago from the Pastoral Land Commission that said that the, the murder of uh, campesinos is the highest it's been since 2003. So that increase has happened under Temer, and they say, the Pastoral Land Commission actually says, it's due to Temer's connections with um, with large landowners, with agribusiness, but so that yeah, I mean, is, of course, that, I think they, they they feel impunity, right? They have a right wing, they have a right wing government. They don't feel that they're going to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. So when you got absolutely. you know an activist land, uh, you know uh, uh, land activist or something like this uh, kicking up a fuss, just you know send out a couple of guys, a couple of bullets, and uh, done deal. Exactly, exactly, and and that's I mean impunity in Brazil is is the law. I mean that's the rule. Uh, and people just understand that. Um, but but with Marielle, this like takes it almost to another level because she was speaking out about the military intervention there, right? And so people said, is this, could this be like the first, A, some, somebody said on, there was an article that, uh, that I included in one of the videos that I did about Marielle that said this is the first death, the first killing, the first assassination of the military intervention. There had been several killings, but like, in response to the to, to the to the military intervention, so I think that that's key to understand. Now, what came from it was this was this kind of outrage, this grassroots movement across Brazil, obviously focused on Rio, but there were marches in every single major city across uh, across Brazil. So millions of people marched um, against her against her killing, uh, and, I, and what we saw in that moment was very much kind of a Black Lives Matter moment of people. You know, getting out into the street, and I think what's important to understand is the difference uh, in where these things overlap. So, because you know, you you would almost never see, say, uh, m folks from the favelas of Rio hitting the streets uh, in, a, in a in you know in a pro Lula march, but they were active and out. I mean, that was the focus of of Maria de Franco, and you've seen kind of this overlap happening just in recent weeks and recent months. <clears throat> almost every event that's happened, kind of pro Lula in Rio has happened together with kind of a commemoration of remembering Maria Lefranco. And still these, these um, kind of events and, and memorials are happening. You know, they happened on the one month anniversary of her killing. And, though, and, 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 and also the, the, the driver, um, you know, also was, was, was killed in the, in the car. Uh, and they're going to continue to happen. Um, and I think that what you're seeing is these connections between uh, her movement and 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 her killing and 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 how that overlaps with this 
kind of this current movement of the organizing in, in, in support of Lula because all of it's in, in within it falls within the same kind of uh, kind, kind of ball and you know in the end what we're looking at is is a potential scenario in in the October elections where uh, you know essentially a fascist um, uh, alt-right uh, Trump-like candidate could come to power and really you know you can imagine even more impunity like the backlash on black and LGBT communities uh, or campesino and indigenous peoples across Brazil would just be massive. And that's why this is really kind of coming to a head at this point. Um, Marielle Franco, her death, you know, in, uh, impacted people across Brazil and also across the world. Indeed. And and just uh, for, for people who maybe aren't, I, I think my, my listeners are educated enough to know this, but just in case uh, somebody doesn't know so much about Brazilian history, Brazil is probably one of the only countries in the world that uh, can really uh, parallel and, and, and understand and, you know, sort of... Uh, match toe-to-toe with uh, racism and white supremacy in the United States and the historical legacy of those things and how they impact our society today. Similarly, in Brazil, I mean, you have a, this is a country with deep economic inequality going back generations that, to a large extent, is racially based. It's based in the legacy of slavery. Brazil had slaves well after the United States had already abolished it. So, in many ways, uh, you know, the killing of, of somebody like a Franco is also uh, seen as a war on people of color, a war on indigenous people, a war on the most, uh, the, the, the poorest and most disenfranchised people. And similarly, I, I think as you were, I think, alluding to there, Mike, this sort of confluence of these of these movements, a movement, you know, in in defense of these communities and simultaneously a movement in defense of Lula, who, though maybe a social democrat, certainly the political, uh, you know, voice of the poor. I mean, this is a pretty significant development and one that I don't know if I can think of a, of a perfect parallel for. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, everything you said is it's totally right. I mean, Brazil is the outside of Africa. Brazil has the largest number of descendant, black descendants, descendants of Africa. It's over fifty percent of the population has some, uh, the you know, descendancy from from Africa. And uh, and and the role that Lula played, like I said, it wasn't radical or revolutionary. But one of the first things he did when he came to office um, was to include you know affirmative action at universities across the country. And people still talk about that. Uh, it's still key about how that's important, how that has changed the dynamics of, of who actually is able to get into universities, public universities, private universities, you know, around the country. Um, and so I, all of this is, 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 is kind of playing out into one, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, six months before the elections, and we're going to see, you know, what happens in, in the coming months. But I think what we can envision, what we can see is kind of continued mobilizations um, but this, these, this stuff isn't, you know, it's not going anywhere. The inequality, it's, it still exists within Brazil, despite, uh, you know, four terms of, of workers party, uh, governments and, um, and yeah, you know, the slavery was abolished in 1889. So that was not that long ago here in Brazil. 
Indeed. Now, before we be, before we begin to wrap it up, I just want to ask another point that I think is always important when talking about Latin America, and that's the role of the media. Uh, people who follow uh, Venezuela, I've done a number of shows on Venezuela, written about it extensively, uh, and and certainly other countries as well. You find very similar trends. A a mostly right-wing, privately-owned media that is, to some extent, the plaything of oligarchs and the 1% in the country and is used as a very potent weapon to undermine uh, left-wing, uh, you know, social democratic forces or, you know, radical left-wing forces or what have you. I mean, that was certainly the case in Argentina all through the time of Cristina Fernandez's term there. And certainly we see the outcome of that as, as a right-wing government under Macri has taken over there. We saw something quite similar in Brazil. Can you talk a little bit about the role of the media, A, in pumping up the, the, the stories around Lula and in driving a lot of these elements, and then B, uh, how you envision their role in these coming elections? And, and I guess what I'm really getting at is, are they aligning behind a particular candidate on the right, or is it a little bit more murky than that? <clears throat> Good questions. Um, a, you know, global, I mean, there, there are several kind of right-wing media, but the main, main one is global. Uh, and that's why, you know, uh, Lula supporters have often said, you know, um, they're, in fact, they're spray painting all around the, the city where I live, Golpe Global, the coup is, is, is global, the global coup. And in fact, the occupations that have happened in the last couple of weeks, many of them have been of global uh, offices or in, you know, different offices around the country. Uh, and that is for the role that they've played, obviously against Lula, building up kind of the, you know, the, the case for Lula's uh, jailing, but also, you know, for their continued role uh, in in either manipulating the information around Maria Le Franco, uh, or even in this latest case around Lula. I mean, there is one really key case that I think is 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 important to understand. Right before the Supreme Court, uh, federal Supreme Court ruling about Lula's uh, freedom that happened on April 4th, the day before, um, there were two generals that came out. One of the generals had come out. He's a, he's, a, he's a general in the reserves. And he came out actually saying that if the Supreme Court came out in Lula's favor, then there was going to be a coup, that the, there was going to be a military intervention uh, and the military was going to have to roll out the tanks. Uh, the head of the armed forces, the head of the armed forces came out just the day before saying that he did not believe in impunity and he believed that people need to be brought to justice. Um, Globo took that and basically took it to the next level and said, well, you can hear right now that he's saying that if the Supreme Court doesn't rule against Lula, then there's probably going to be military intervention. This is what one of the newscasters on Global came out and said. So that is the type of kind of manipulation the type of uh, public opinion creation, and also putting pressure on the Supreme Court. Imagine in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a democratic country that the military comes out basically saying, no, you have to either, you have to, to rule against this guy or else we're going to roll up the tanks. Uh, I mean, the, the general didn't necessarily do that, but he insinuated, and then Global did the rest. And that's what you see within kind of the mainstream media here. And when I say mainstream media, particularly Global, but also Vage and these other areas, they've just had a campaign out but forever, and we have to remember that this is the same people that they, they basically created um, <clears throat> public opinion in this country, and they swayed elections going back decades. Even the very first election with Lula, a lot of people say that he lost that election because of 
the role and the manipulation of of statements and 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 on air from from Lula and the other presidential you know candidates. Uh, and this is the you know this, so it's going back. This is the this is the, the the channel that was in support of the military dictatorship back in the 1960s. Um, so it has a long role of creating public opinion uh, and holding it there. Um, and so obviously, a Yes, that's happened. They've been completely against Lula and completely and had been used even by Sergio Moro to, to things that were said in global were then used as fact, uh, you know, in the lawsuit against Lula. So that kind of this um, this feedback cycle that is extremely concerning. What can we see in the coming months? We're going to continue to see uh, more of the same. Uh, obviously, global had kind of their their moment just after Temer came to power. Uh, and then they kind of turned their backs on Temer for a little bit, as did the rest of the mainstream media. And for a little bit, people thought that Temer might even be out at some point because he was under his own investigations. Uh, but it seemed to be kind of like a, they're, they're, they've placated at this point, understanding he's out. He, you know, he's going to be here through the end of the elections. Um, are they in it to win it for any particular candidate at this point? You know, they've been not really. Uh, you know, you've you, you've seen them. You know. Uh, kind of, you know, lifting up Bolsonaro and lifting up other kind of right-wing candidates, but they haven't really chosen their their guy just yet. But I think we're going to continue to see what we will see, and there's no doubt, because this is what they've always done, uh, is kind of their backlash against the left, uh, whether that's the PSALT candidate or the, the Communist Party candidate, whether it's, you know, Lula, whoever else. The, 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 the name of the game right now is take out Lula, and that's what Global is focused on, and that's what all the rest of it is. Absolutely. And uh, certainly not a surprise now. And, and I mean, it's interesting, too, because if you remember during the campaign here uh, in the United States, uh, you know, Trump had some 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 hostilities with Fox News on a number of occasions. And certainly there were elements at Fox News that really were unhappy with Trump basically taking a shit on every other Republican candidate and on the rest of the right wing. But ultimately, Fox News has basically become Trump's TV network today. So I, I can imagine that uh, something quite similar could happen as, uh, you know, if a Bolsonaro were to come to power. But um, my my final question just on the social movement uh, aspect of this, one of the things that, and, and I'm not suggesting that this is, you know, a criticism, but more, you know, let's call it, let's call it a concern born of certain experience, uh, that organizing and building a true left alternative and a true left opposition, oftentimes if it's, if it's organized around, say, an upcoming election, that it becomes merely an electoral movement rather than a real social movement. And with Occupy, one of the the, one of the principal criticisms, and I'm certainly one of the people who lodged these criticisms, was that a lack of definitive organization, a lack of structure, and a lack of clear uh, demands left Occupy open to basically being subverted at every turn. And I think, it, and I'm not, I don't want to get into a whole thing about what happened with Occupy, but that was a lesson I think that a lot of people learned. And I'm wondering to what extent are those social movements and, and, and various other elements that have shown up in defense of Lula, are they building something that goes beyond the electoral sphere? Because ultimately, that's what it's really going to take to unseat the right wing in Brazil. Well, I think there, there's, there's, there's a couple of levels of things there. I think first off, we're talking about movements. You know, the landless movement is the largest social movement in the hemisphere. Uh, you know, they've, they've been organizing for decades and have been able to 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 win land by occupying territory across the country 
territory the size from the at least this is from a couple of years ago was the size of Uruguay that they had been able to to to, to win and 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 achieve land for 350,000 families over the last 35 years. So this is we're talking about a movement that's already extremely organized, uh, and so they're using their resources at this moment uh, and their people to be able to put that into this larger fight. Right, uh, the the homeless workers movement is also they're you know. Be, becoming, they're growing larger and larger and extremely important, particularly in recent years. Uh, and I think that they're going to play an even bigger role in the coming years, the homeless workers movement. I mean, based in Sao Paulo, but around the country, a lot of people are kind of making this connection. A lot of people see this parallel between Lula and what he was in kind of the, the, the union organizing of the 1970s and now what the homeless workers movement is. And this, and the leader of them, you know, Guillermo Bolos, who's the, the pre-presidential candidate for, for PESO, uh, and kind of making these parallels between Lula and, and Bolos also because of very similar appearances. So we're talking about people that movements that are already very, very the Cooch, you know, the, the, the largest uh, union federation in the country, uh, which is kind of the, the parallel to the Workers' Party. Uh, and then all the other kind of movements and, and leftist groups and students and teachers. So we're talking about different movements that have been very organized for a long time. Now, a couple of years ago, they founded... Um, um, the povo sin medo, so that's like the the people without fear, and also kind of an, another coalition of kind of grassroots and and parties and and movements that have been fighting kind of against obviously in, kind of in resistance against the coup, and now you know fighting for Lula's freedom, which they see as the consolidation of the coup. So I think what they're concerned about right now is right now. It's not just about winning an election. It's about actually fighting. Uh, you know, a coup d'etat. It's about actually fighting kind of a major backlash and trying to, to, in whatever way possible, trying to keep the momentum on to turn this thing over with a very clear idea about what things look like in October. So it's not just, you know, I, this is one of the major differences between Occupy. Occupy was we're against the 1%, but we got a lot of different issues and things and, and there was a lot of different ways of organizing. And things here are also you know, are, are very, very clear about where they're going, what they want. And also there's a very, there's already a kind of a built-in structure within these different movements that are kind of organized, not necessarily at the occupations themselves, um, but they're used to, I mean, the MST is used to, they're used to living on occupations. The MST has, you know, they're, the way they do it is they, they move in, they occupy for years. I met this one woman just two weeks ago who has been living on one piece of land for four years trying to win her own land for her family. And she came to the Kurichi occupation with kind of with different representatives from her local group uh, because they wanted to fight for Lula's freedom. And so I think it's important. They also come with their own kind of organizing, which is also really, really key. The MST, the way they organize is extremely direct democracy, right? They come together, they decide in their collectives, they're not representatives, they're spokespeople. Uh, and so that's also really important to understand that that is kind of what's happening here, but they've been doing this within their local communities for for years, you know. So they come with, there's a lot of consolidated kind of organizing already happening within there. Now, I think the growing, the, like the growth and trying to get people, more people involved and more people from different areas, obviously those people are going to be coming that are going to be going to be newer, but the ability to co-op these other movements, I think is much harder because, you know, they're much more consolidated. There is one other thing that I think is, is an interesting um, <clears throat> occurrence that's just happened that has not been talked about at all. But last week, the um, 
all of the, 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 the major seven left parties, so the PT, the PESOL, um, the, the Communist Party, and several other kind of leftist parties, they formed a new coalition, a broad front coalition in defense of democracy uh, in Brasilia. And so the idea that these different parties will be going forward, kind of unifying behind one clear idea. No one has talked about this yet. It, like, it was almost like completely off everybody's radar, particularly in the English language news. I haven't seen anything, but even in, in Portuguese news, I think that's gonna become important. Now, of course, this is not answering your social movement question, this is electoral. But I think that this political question, what we are seeing is at least this kind of unified response to in defense of democracy. And that's what a lot of people are talking about. They say, it's not just about Lula. We're talking about Brazilian democracy. I was speaking with the, the president of the, <clears throat> the Santa Catarina sector of the, of the, of the Cooch uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And she herself said, listen, if Lula can't run the first, and, and, and he's jailed just like the right says he should be jailed, the first thing is, there goes our democracy, the rule of law, that's the main thing that we're fighting for. And so that's what's really key here. It's not just about one presidential candidate. People say, if these elections go on without Lula, it's fraud. And, um, and, and that's why we're seeing this major movement. And so it's not just about, oh, we want to win these elections. It's about saving the, uh, the, you know, stopping a coup and saving a democratic system. That's, that's what's the bottom line here. Yeah, it's very interesting because I think that uh, it's very easy to, uh, you know, try to project our understandings of what a left looks like uh, in the West, in the, you know, the global North or in the United States or whatever. And remembering, and as I as I learned in Venezuela, that the left in Latin America is a very different, uh, very different thing. And certainly all of these different organizations with their long histories and everything, it's going to be very exciting to see how things coalesce. And certainly, just as you mentioned, I mean, if they really are forming a broad sort of united front kind of uh, uh, coalition that uh, in and of itself is 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 pretty groundbreaking and and moreover it could become an electoral force so uh, the last the last thing I just want to say before we before we sign off here to what extent to what extent do uh, do you see some of these elements um, that have come together in Brazil reaching out beyond the borders of the country in in a lot of ways Brazil is, if not the most influential, then certainly one of the, you know, two or three most influential countries in Latin America. Obviously, its size, obviously, its, uh, you know, uh, mineral resources and, and natural resources and other things and economic power, its membership within the BRICS to, to whatever extent that's relevant. Um, Brazil is an influential country. And I'm wondering, are some of these social movements, activists, activist networks, are they reaching beyond Brazil's borders? and making connections, as far as you know, with uh, similar movements in Honduras and in these other countries that are experiencing a very similar kind of right-wing, you know, neoliberal uh, authoritarian assault. I mean, they definitely are, and they always have. You know, the, the MST has, when I was living in Venezuela well, over a decade ago now, the MST was, was always had people there that were connected up with the, the Frente Ezequiel Zamora Front, um, which is like the Campesina movement there. They've been involved in kind of the, the Latin American, uh, in, in the Latin American, what was it, environment school, um, school of, of kind of farming in in um, in Venezuela, and and so and and I know that you know they've they've, they've traveled all across the region, uh, and I know that they're they're obviously making the connections between you know Honduras and a bunch of other countries and and what's happened traditionally in Brazil, but also you know what's what's happening now. I don't know. You know, I don't have figures of numbers that are actually there and personal and, 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 
uh, and they're actually kind of uh, on on the ground in these different locations. But definitely, people are absolutely aware about kind of what's happening across the region and the role that you know that that, that each other are playing and the importance that these different social movements have uh, and the connections being made. Um, you know, and so that I think <clears throat> that in among itself is really key. The internationalism um, is you know is 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 on spot. There's a there's a couple of really interesting two two interesting things I think that also not necessarily with the social movements but there's been there's there's this one group Media Ninja right now and if people are looking for kind of <clears throat> to stay on top of what's happening in Brazil it's in Portuguese but their stuff is just you know they are live streaming constantly it's a collective of 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 media makers all across the country that are following social movements extremely closely and so they're live streaming everywhere there's photos there's video and it's just constant. The other thing is journalistas libres, and this is the, these two groups have been just really key in terms of able to like put things out, but also make the connections and follow along with you know social movements and the leftist kind of struggles across Brazil, but also making those connections across the region. Every every one of these countries is has had this kind of right wing backlash. Like you said, Brazil is really important. Uh, just on Friday. Five was it five or six countries, uh, South American countries, announced that they were leaving UNASUR. You know the the Union of South American Nations, which just a couple of years ago was extremely key in terms of you know South America creating its own union to kind of push back on U.S. hegemony in the region, and then you just had Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, Peru, what was it, Colombia, and I'm missing somebody, but they just pulled out on they suspended their um, you know their 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 place there at UNASUR just on Friday. So that type of thing, this this rollback. Right now, the, the, the right just a couple of hours ago, um, it's Sunday night right now, and the right just won in won the election in Paraguay. It's the son of the former secretary of the former dictator, uh, Strausner. So that, he's going to be the, you know, he's from the Colorado party, which is the, the, the longtime party in, in, in Paraguay, and he's just won, won the election there. So, you know, the right wing kind of assault on, in, like, across the region, or the right wing wave, continues to, continues to roll. And we're going to continue to see this happening. There is one, one, one thing I did just want to just one point I did just want to make, and this was kind of you mentioned the left. We were talking about the, kind of the left and this kind of kind of the excitement across the, the social movements and also the parties. It's also really important to remember that <clears throat> Brazil is a massive country, um, and whenever people talk about Brazil, it's always like, "Wow, the PT is huge. The MST is huge. There's <clears throat> you know millions of members, and and this is all really key." And it's true. Um, you know, the population of Brazil isn't as big as the U.S. I think there's like something like 250 million people, but it's so big and it's a very similar situation. So the left can be completely organized. They can be completely active. They can, they can put millions of people in the streets and there still is a, a, a huge, massive percentage of the population that is, you know, watching their telenovelas. Uh, they're watching their football they go to work, they come back home and they don't want to be bothered. Uh, and, and, and this creates this dynamic that's extremely, extremely complicated, uh, in terms of these things, what they don't want, they don't want corruption. That's what they see in the media, right? Cause the media is able to manipulate and move things in different directions. You can push the attention onto football. You can push the attention on <clears throat> to the latest telenovela, or you can push the attention and say that the PT is the most corrupt thing ever. And Lula is crazy and all these supporters out in the street. And so that's, that's, we're going to, over the coming months, what you're going to see is, kind of the same uh, operandi. We're going to see the, the, the same playbook that's going to continue to happen, where Lula's continued to be criminalized. 
there are he still there is there there is hope he has his legal team and this is important to, to bring up his legal team has um, they still have to bring his appeal to both of the Supreme Courts uh, there is a case that's going to be brought up in the Supreme Court supposedly in the coming weeks that could kind of turn over the the habeas corpus thing the the thing where people are jailed after the first appeal and that could see actually Lula freed within a, a couple of weeks if it goes his way um, he can still run for election, even if he's in jail, um, and it's the Supreme Electoral Court, the the, the, the highest court of the, of the elections that will find this, that will decide in September if he can actually run or not. Um, people who are convicted of corruption or other major crimes cannot hold office for eight years. Um, and the PT has until 20 days out to substitute his candidacy for somebody else. So likely what we will see is that Lula will remain the candidate all the way until the very, until as, as, as far as absolutely possible. If the Supreme Electoral Court decides he cannot actually run, uh, then we could see, see the PT substitute his candidacy for somebody else with the idea and the hope that the wind is already going to be behind those sails to kind of carry that person into, into power. Um, so this, the, you know, this, it's only going to get more and more intense. It's going to be a roller coaster ride until the very end. Great analysis. That's very well said. Very interesting. Uh, something for us to follow in the coming months. We're going to leave it there. Mike Fox, an independent media, uh, multimedia journalist based in Brazil, former editor of NACLA's Report on the Americas. Follow his work on the website, www.mfox.us. Follow him on Twitter at mfox underscore US. Mike, great stuff as always. Thanks for all your work. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. And listeners, thank you as always, and I'll chat with you again real soon.